For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. If you weren't here last week, we have been doing this uh, kind of series that is a little bit different than what, we've do- what we normally do. What we normally do is we just go through a passage and we sort of dissect it verse by verse, but we've decided that we're going to talk about a topic that is very relevant to our culture today, which is finding peace. I think a lot of times people feel this sense that they are confused about life, that they feel anxious, that they feel depressed. There's a huge mental health crisis in our culture today, and so it's interesting to see that what modern wisdom says about our mental well-being fits pretty well with what we find in the Bible as well. Now, last week we looked at the work of Sonia Libermiski, who's a professor of psychology at the University of California, and she wrote this book called The How of Happiness. And she tried to answer this question, how much do your genes your life circumstances and your thoughts and actions play into your mental well-being. And her findings were very interesting. She studied identical twins who who both lived in the same household as well as fraternal twins living in the same household and then also studied a lot of people who had undergone traumatic events in their lives. And what she found was that about 50% of our happiness is related to what she calls our genetic set point. And, you know, it's interesting when when you study the brain, different irregularities in our brain can actually create um, cognitive problems and emotional problems. Um, For example, if you look at the human brain, you know, the limbic system contains uh, the area of the brain where our emotions, our behavior, our motivation, and long-term memory are governed. And it's interesting, the amygdala, which really regulates our basic emotions, that MRI scans have shown that an enlarged amygdala is linked to anxiety disorders. Not to mention, when they've done scans of the frontal lobe, which contains our prefrontal cortex that regulates executive function, emotional expression, problem solving, memory, language, and judgment, that if there were irregularities to this frontal lobe, that it was linked to difficulty in inhibiting emotions, anger, excitement, depression, social inhibition, and compulsive eating. So we see that irregularities in our brain chemistry or function can actually have an impact on our behavior. And yet, as we said last week, it's very interesting to see that this discovery of neurogenesis, or sometimes called neuroplasticity, suggests that we're not really a prisoner to our brain chemistry, but that actually our thoughts and our actions can influence the chemistry in our brain. Now, going back to that chart here, what's interesting to me, and we're going to explore this more next week, is that only 10% of circumstances, or is what she calls life happens, 
impacts our overall happiness. I mean, it does in the short term. Obviously, if a traumatic event happens or we lose a loved one, that can obviously impact our happiness. But long term, over the course of our lives, only 10%. Now, the thing that's very intriguing is that our thoughts and actions actually play a pretty big role in our overall happiness. And I think that's good news for us because a lot of times we feel like we're sort of a victim of our circumstance or a victim to our brain chemistry. And yet her research seems to suggest that we do have things that we have control over, that we can take action that can change our overall happiness. So this week, we want to sort of talk about something a little bit different. We want to talk about battling our intrusive thoughts. Last week, we talked about anxiety. But we want to talk about this concept of these thoughts that enter into our minds that are intrusive, they're unwanted. How do we deal with that? I mean, all of us have, at one point in time, thoughts that come into our minds that we don't want. And we linger on those thoughts. We, we ruminate over them. We chew on them over and over again. And at times we find ourselves obsessing over those thoughts, which impact our well-being. Now, last week we talked about Robert Leahy and his excellent book, The Worry Cure. And he lays out a number of cognitive distortions in his books in his book that he describes as being very common, typical. The first is what he calls mind reading. That's where you assume that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. I mean, we all fall into this, don't we? I mean, think about your typical interaction. You're sitting across the room from somebody, you make eye contact with them, and you notice that her eyebrows are a little bit furrowed And so the immediate thought pops into your mind, she's judging me. She hates me. And yet, we're concluding that based on a lack of evidence. I mean, if we went up and and asked her, so why did you make that face to me? You know, for all we know, she would tell you, well, I've been really constipated recently. I just got on the keto diet, and it's just really, it's clogging me up. Right? I mean, we don't know that. And sometimes what happens is when we're reading into people's motivations or what we think they are thinking, it can lead us into all types of problems. I just recently heard a story about a man who described getting onto a New York subway car and he was sitting there, things were very quiet, people were sort of paying attention to the paper that they were reading. And then on the next stop, this man walks on board with three or four young children. And they're being loud, they're throwing things across the train car, they're bothering the passengers. And meanwhile, the man with the children just sits by this guy and sort of just looks off in the distance out the window, seemingly oblivious to his kids terrorizing everybody on the train car. And so five minutes go by, 10 minutes go by, and, and he can tell that the other people, the other passengers on the train car are obviously annoyed as well that this man doesn't have his kids under control. And so finally, he decides that he's going to confront this man. He said, sir, 
uh, it seems like your children are a little bit out, out, out of control. Can you please talk to them? And it's almost like he snapped out of a trance. He said, I'm so sorry. He said, we just came back from the hospital and I just found out that my wife had died and I didn't have the heart to tell my kids. I don't know what to say to them. And you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh. That's like, you, I mean, I'm sure he had a complete paradigm shift when he realized what was really at the heart of this man feeling um, totally out of it. And so mind reading can get us into trouble, not only personally, but also interpersonally as we interact with other people. Another thing that happens sometimes is fortune telling. You predict the future, that things will only get worse, where we forecast how bad things could get. The third is catastrophizing or magnification. You believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. If my girlfriend breaks up with me, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to handle that. Number four, labeling. You assign global negative traits to yourself and others. A real common one is, I'm a failure. You know, you set out to complete a degree or set out some sort, at some sort of task that you're trying to accomplish and you fail. And the thought that comes into your mind is, I'm a failure. And that can really weigh heavy on us where we identify ourselves as a failure. And yet you have to sort of break this down and ask yourself, what does it mean that I'm a failure? Is it really that I'm a failure or is it that there were behaviors or things that I did that led to a failure? Well, if I identify that I may have made some mistakes that led to a failure, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a failure. And you know, one of the things that's really negative about labeling is that this self-perception that I am a failure, something is inherently or intrinsically wrong with me, that I am flawed, actually creates sort of this cycle where we go into situations feeling like we're going to fail and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we find ourselves in this endless cycle of feeling like you're a failure. Number five, negative filter or having a lost frame. You focus almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positive. Some of us even go further than this. It's not that we're just sort of overlooking the positive things. It's that we're refusing to identify and acknowledge the positives when they're right there in front of our face. Number six, overgeneralizing. You perceive a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. You know, we get into a car wreck and one of our friends gets injured and we think to ourselves, if I only had been driving more careful, she would have never gotten hurt. I'm so reckless. You see the jump in thinking there? What about number seven, all or nothing thinking? You view events or people in all or nothing terms. This weekend, we had our College Connection event where we invite high school students to come and visit our college ministry. And one woman shared her story about how when she was in high school, she was an uh, influencer on social media and that she was actually earning, at, at some, at, in some cases, about $1,000 per post. And 
Even though her popularity was growing on social media, she expressed how she was feeling absolutely depressed during that entire time, her and her other friends who were doing the same thing. And one of, the, one of the statements that she made just really struck me where she said, you know, I came to a place in my life where I was so suicidal that I believed that either I was going to get famous or I was going to kill myself. And you think to yourself, I mean, th- that's all or nothing thinking. There are other options. Number eight, personalizing, where you attribute a disproportionate amount of blame to yourself for negative events and fail to see that certain events are actually outside of your control. In other cases, we might fall into the opposite of this, which is blaming, where you focus on the other person as a source of your negative feelings and refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. You know, the reason why I'm so depressed, the reason why I'm so out of it is because I have such insensitive roommates. If people would only love me more in the way that I expect, then I would be happier. And so we, we place the blame on circumstances or people rather than looking in the mirror and recognizing that we are in part contributing to our unhappiness. And then number 10, emotional reasoning, reasoning where you let your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. I feel depressed and so everything that I see is colored by the negative. And so... I think that I'm coming to a a solid conclusion, but in fact, my negativity bias is actually clouding my judgment and my logic. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is that depressed people are usually caught in sort of a feedback loop in which distorted thoughts actually cause negative feelings, which then distort further thinking. And so people who are trapped in depression oftentimes describe this, this cycle that they feel like they cannot break out of. And one of the amazing things is that modern psychology has put forward cognitive therapy, which is amazing because cognitive therapy is where you identify one of these cognitive distortions. You identify it, you write it down in order to analyze it, and then you, I, you figure out what that cognitive distortion is and what is the correct way to think about a situation as opposed to this distortion. Now, one of the amazing things about cognitive therapy is that research demonstrates that cognitive therapy actually has um, the same results as taking some medication like Prozac and SSRI. And one of the things that's amazing about this is that cognitive therapy, even though I don't agree with all of the prescriptions that come from cognitive therapy, you know, as we talked about last week, I think that there are a lot of really upsides to cognitive therapy, but the, the real problem with cognitive therapy is that it doesn't go far enough. That cognitive therapy tells us that we should have hope. And yet, where do we find our ultimate source of hope? I mean, we can tell ourselves you're valuable, life is hopeful, but in the ultimate sense, what hope do we really have to grasp onto? And that's where we suggest that the biblical worldview offers much more. But one of the things that's interesting, though, about cognitive therapy is that, first of all, it's free, 
And it doesn't have the same side effects as SSRIs, which are, um, you know, reuptake inhibitors. And so uh, one of the things that you'll notice is that with SSRIs, there are a lot of side effects to them that are very negative, such as weight gain, uh, loss of sexual drive, and in some cases, actual suicidal ideation. And so, obviously, there are going to be some cases, and we're going to, we're going to hear a story from someone later who was, was severely mentally ill, and the combination of medication and cognitive therapy was very helpful, along with the community that supported her in gaining some victory over her mental health issues. So, we want to sort of advance a few things that you can do to sort of curb these cognitive distortions or to battle them. So how do we go about battling some of these intrusive thoughts that enter into our minds? I think the first thing is we should learn how to break out of the lost frame. You know, the lost frame is a perspective. You know, when you look at the glass and it's half empty, you're looking at things through the lost frame. Whereas if you look at the glass and you see that it's half full, you're looking at it through the gain frame. And so people are sort of wired one way or the other. They're either sort of glass half full people or glass half empty sort of people. Not to say that, you know, we can't change our perspective at times, but there is a propensity, a a tendency to view the world in those terms. Now, what's interesting though is that Alison Ledgerwood a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, wanted to explore the question of, you know, when you frame things positively or negatively, how does that change the way you see the world? And what she noticed is that once we sort of get caught in a lost frame, where we start to see things negatively, it's really hard to break out of that, that it actually takes work to break out of that lost frame. She did this fascinating study where she took two groups and she described a surgical procedure to to both groups. To group one, she said that this surgical procedure had a 70% success rate. And of course, the participants in group one, this cohort, felt positively toward the procedure. Group two, she sort of framed it differently through a lost frame and she said that there was a 30% failure and of course people had a negative view of the surgical procedure. Sometime later, she went back to these these two different groups and to group one, she then also pointed out, you know, there there was a 30% failure rate and that actually did change their perception of the surgical procedure somewhat, and they started to, some of them viewed it negatively. Now, with group two, she flipped it and said there was actually a 70% success rate and sort of emphasized some of the, some of the positives that came out of the surgical procedure, and yet, fascinatingly, their view of it never changed. They were still negative about it. And so, that tells us a little bit about the way we see the world, that once we get trapped in this lost frame, it's often really hard to break out of that. And obviously, we don't need a a sociological study to tell us this. We find ourselves caught in this sort of negative 
way of thinking, and it's, and it's hard for us to break out of that throughout the day, right? You know, you wake up, you jump out of bed, and you stub your toe, and you let off a few expletives, and that really sets the tone for the rest of the day, doesn't it? Now, it takes work to break out of the lost frame. You know, in growing up in the 90s, one of the things that my psychologist I used to tell me, my therapist, I, w- I went to therapy when I was like 10 or 11 years old. I was a troubled kid, right? And one of the things that my psychologist would tell me is that, you know, your anger and negativity, it's sort of like a pressure cooker. And so what you need to do is you just need to let it out sometime, right? Otherwise you might explode. And so I took that and ran with it, right? (laughs) I mean, the slightest provocation, you know, I just really let my parents or my friends just know what I was thinking. And I would just spew all of these negative things that I was thinking. And yet what I noticed was that it didn't make me feel any better. You ever notice that? You go through a session where you have a really bad day and you decide that you're going to victimize your roommate by basically holding them captive and making them listen to you complain about your life for the next 45 minutes, you don't usually feel like, oh, what a lift. Oh, I feel so much better now. Thanks for letting me get that out. Usually we feel worse. And, and research suggests that giving vent to our negativity actually makes things worse, not better. In fact, um, we should actually spend time each day casting our mind upon the good things from our day. That's what Allison Ledgerwood suggests is that instead of indulging on all the negative things that happen, that there, we need to redirect our thinking to acknowledge the, the, the good things, the positive things that are actually there in our day. And so when we find ourselves you know, moving, spiraling toward negativity, you know, stopping ourselves and saying, okay, wait a second. Today, was there anything good that happened? Well, I had a positive interaction with my friend. Or I had somebody who came up to me and expressed how grateful they were for our relationship. And as we find ourselves focusing in on the good things that happen, we notice that our perspective starts to shift. It takes work to break out of that lost frame. Not surprisingly, it's interesting that when you look at what Allison Ledgerwood was saying, that it actually fits, coheres really well with what we find in ancient biblical wisdom. Check out what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 9. He says, to a group of people who are, who are dealing with some anxiousness in the context. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is, is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so he's calling on, he's giving this injunction to the Philippian believers to cast their mind onto the positive things that are happening in their lives. Now, we'd be mistaken to think that the Apostle Paul was maybe suggesting that we engage in a form of positive thinking. You know, in in modern psychology, 
what psychologists suggest is that we should engage in just positive thinking. You know, if you think positively about the world, then you can actually change reality. You can change your reality sheerly through your positivity. And yet we know that that doesn't happen. That we may be positive about the world, but that's not going to shape reality, what we think or what we believe. And the other thing is, we do have to acknowledge that there are a lot of negative things that come into our lives. And so it's not sufficient for us to simply pretend like those things aren't real. But in addition to acknowledging the reality of the negative trials that we experience, the suffering that we experience, the grief that we feel, we also need to acknowledge the good things that are happening. And from the Christian worldview, there's plenty to be thankful for because of what God has done for us. Number two, expressing gratitude and casting your mind on the positive. Um, In this book, The Psychology of Gratitude, Emmons and McCullough conduct this experiment where they ask two groups of people um, to list five, one, one set of subjects to list five things that they were grateful for once a week for just several weeks. Then they asked another group, another cohort, to list uh, and give irritants or hassles they experienced that same week. What they noticed is that even a week later, the subjects who listed just five things that they were grateful for once a week for several weeks noticed that they were more optimistic about their week, more optimistic about their lives, and generally happier. Whereas... Those who gave a list of their irritants or hassles that they experienced that week for several weeks experienced the opposite, that they were less happy. Now, one of the things that's really interesting is that they also studied people who not only expressed things that they were grateful for on paper uh, several times or once a week over the course of several weeks, but they also studied people who actually expressed their gratitude toward other people, and the the results were remarkable. They found that three months later, people who actually expressed gratitude to another person still felt a sense of happiness and well-being as a result of doing that compared to others. And so, again, it's very interesting to see how this coheres with ancient biblical wisdom. Again, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the importance of gratitude. Think about what he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances. In all circumstances. We're going to find out next week that that is one of the, the key aspects of being able to endure trials in your life, but also to do that with joy. Or in Colossians 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And then in Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so, expressing gratitude, savoring the good things that, that, that 
God has done in your life or the good things in your life actually has a positive effect on us and our mental well-being. The third is breaking the silence. It's interesting. Historians have said that it took about two decades for the full effects of the Holocaust to really be felt throughout the world. And in 1961, there was this interesting trial that took place in Jerusalem where they tried this war criminal named Adolf Ekman. Ekman was actually one of the SS soldiers who was in charge of the logistics in the final solution for the Jews. And so he was responsible probably for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of deaths. And so when they brought Ekman to trial, they brought together this, this uh, special counsel to try him. And they brought forward witnesses, people who are Holocaust survivors, who for the very first time in their lives since that incident started to express and talk about the trauma that they experienced. And what they found was that it was maybe the first time that survivors felt like they had a voice to express what they had gone through. As they've interviewed survivors from the Holocaust, one of the things that comes up as a common theme is that Holocaust survivors have a very difficult time talking about their experiences, not because they don't want to talk about it, but because talking about it is a threat to the person that they're talking to. All of the lurid, horrific details are almost too much for people listening to have to endure. And so this man, James Pennebaker, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Texas, decided that he was going to do a case study. He took 33 Holocaust survivors and in an hour interview just asked them to divulge details about their experience. And he describes going through 40 or 50 hours of tape listening to these survivors and their experience and how horrific it was. Then, afterward, he checked in with them a year later and found something very interesting, that those who divulge the most details describe going to the doctor half as much as those who are reluctant to do so. Now, the problem with this is that 33 people isn't really a great study because he didn't have a control group of people who didn't uh, interview. And so he decided that he was going to take this a step further. And he, he went to college students at the University of Texas and he, he got three groups of people. And he said, uh, or he had two groups of people. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to uh, write down on paper uh, for five days some of the most difficult and painful memories that you've ever experienced in your life. And then to the control group, he said, all right, just write about anything you want, something superficial. And so he got these students to release their medical records for the next six months and found something amazing that those who 
wrote down these traumatic experiences that they had gone through in childhood, that they went to the doctor half as much again as those who just wrote about nothing. Easily, uh, since then, easily, there have been one to 2,000 studies conducted along these lines. And what they have demonstrated is that people who are able to express difficult memories and painful memories to other people are healthier. I mean, they're able to demonstrate that people who are able to talk about painful memories from their past um, have uh, less instances of cardiovascular problems, that they have lower instances of autoimmune diseases, and that they suffer less from anxiety and depression. And you know, one of the things, again, that's amazing about this is that ancient biblical wisdom gives us examples of people expressing painful thoughts and memories. You know, think about the book of Psalms. I mean, you have 150 chapters of people expressing their deepest thoughts. And many of these are lament psalms or psalms where they are just expressing their grief and wrestling through these feelings of despair and anguish and arriving at a place where they're able to trust in God. You know, the other thing that's interesting too is that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament actually gives the injunction that we should carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. In the context, the law of Christ is to love one another. And so, According to the Bible, God has designed us so that we, were, we are supposed to be in community, bearing one another's burdens, that we don't have to suffer alone. We don't have to suffer in silence. I mean, I've heard of cases where people for decades had been holding on to and trying to suppress this memory and thought of something that happened in their childhood and then finally opening up and feeling tremendous amount of relief. You know, what I think is happening here is that, you know, when you are trying to suppress a memory or thought that has been bothering you for many, many years, it takes a lot of cognitive work to do that, and it has an impact on you physically and emotionally. And so, getting that out, opening up about those things, allows you to relax. Number four, strong social connections. Um, it's interesting, Emil Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology, did a huge study all throughout Europe in the 19th century where he studied uh, the rise of suicide during his lifetime. And one of the things that he found is that in cases where people had dense social networks, in other words, they were connected with other people, the denser the connection, the less likely they were to, to take their own lives. So the people who are most likely to take their own lives were people who are living alone. People who were married were less likely, and those who are married with kids were even less likely. He says, the more weakened the groups to which a man belongs, the less he depends on them. The more he consequently depends only on himself and recognizes no other rules of conduct than what are founded on his private interests. 
And so one of the things in, in the last hundred years that we found is that a low quantity of social interactions were linked to development and worsening of cardiovascular disease, repeated heart attacks, autoimmune disorders, high blood pressure, cancer, and slowed uh, wound healing. Increased social interactions, extended life, more than actually quitting smoking. Here's, here's a study from the Harvard Medical School publication. A relative lack of social ties is associated with depression and later life cognitive decline, as well as with increased mortality. One study which examined data from more than 309,000 people. I mean, talk about statistically significant. We're talking about a massive sample size. Found that a lack of strong relationships increased the risk of premature death from all causes by 50%, an effect on mortality risk roughly comparable to smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and greater than obesity and physical inactivity. So maybe you're thinking... Maybe I should quit smoking to, you know, try to prolong my life. Good, you should do that. But you should also hang out with people too. <laughs> it also speeds recovery from surgery. It reduces the risk of depression and anxiety disorders. Here's uh, Emma Seppala who is a PhD science director at the Stanford Center for Compassion and Altruism Research. She writes, people who feel more connected to others have lower levels of anxiety and depression. Moreover, studies show that they also have higher self-esteem, greater empathy for others, are more trusting and cooperative, and as a consequence, others are more open to trusting and cooperating with them. In other words, social connectedness generates a positive feedback loop of social, emotional, and physical well-being. You know, it's not just that extroverts are naturally happier and healthier. Um, it, we notice too that introverted people benefit from social interaction just as much, even though they're averse to it. Nicholas Epley, a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago, noticed as he was on his daily commute on, this, on the Chicago Transit Authority that people would just be sitting there quiet they wouldn't interact with one another. They were on their phones or preoccupied. And so he decided that he wanted to study this behavior. And so he picked three groups. He, he recruited three groups of passengers who were on his normal commute to work each day. And so he separated them to three groups. One group, he said, I want you to try your best for a week to communicate with somebody who's a complete stranger sitting next to you on the train car. The second group, he says, just do whatever you were doing. Uh, and then the third group, he said, I want you to avoid as much social interaction as possible <laughs> while on the train. Not surprisingly, people who actually connected with even complete strangers reported having uh, feeling better about their commute. And then the second group who just did the same thing felt less happy. And then the ones who avoided other people and social interaction were even less happy about their commute. Now, <clears throat> you would think too that 
the people who were sort of the victims of, the, of this study, right? The people who had to sit there and endure people trying to make an awkward connection with them were unhappy about that. But he studied that as well and found that the people who these subjects went and talked to felt very happy about the, the interaction they had with people. Now here's where things get a little bit interesting. Uh, when asked which group do you think you would be happiest in? Most subjects said that they would be happy in the group either where they were avoiding social interaction or doing the same thing that they were always doing. And many of those people were introverted people. He found though that as a whole, the introverted people and the extroverted people who were forced to make a connection with a complete stranger found that they were happier as a, as a result. And so what's interesting is that our prediction of what would make us actually happy is the opposite of what actually happens. You know, as an introverted person, you want to avoid social interaction because you're, you're afraid that that awkwardness is going to be unpleasant. And yet, what you find is that when you actually have social connection, it makes you happier. Also, recent work on giving supports, uh, support shows that caring for others is often more beneficial than receiving help. And so those people who are a support system for others actually benefited more than those who simply received support from other people. And again, this fits perfectly with what we see in ancient wisdom. You know, think about what Jesus says. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's a little bit counterintuitive. You know, we think to ourselves, if only I could get people to love me the right way or to, if I could get better friends who actually care about me and love me for who I am, then I'll be happier. And yet what we find is that the research and ancient biblical wisdom is just the opposite, that when we give of ourselves sacrificially to others, that actually makes us happy. You know, maybe one of the real problems that we have and is causing us to feel so unhappy is that we're thinking so much about ourselves. That having a little bit of a reprieve to think about somebody else and their problems makes us feel a sense of relief. Or the Apostle Paul, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so we in Christ, though, are many, form one body and each member belongs to one another. You know, he envisions God's community as being this interconnected, organic body. That whenever one part of the body, one individual is hurting or suffering, that others feel the impact of that. When somebody is grieving, we all grieve. When somebody needs help, we all throw in to help out that person. Seneca says, no one can live happily who is regard to himself alone and transforms everything into a question of his own utility. You must live for your neighbor if you would live, uh, if you would live for yourself. And more recently, John Donne says, no man is an island entire of, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. You know, one of the real problems that we run into, though, is that this modern conception of freedom really erodes 
relationships. You know, today, one of, the, one of the most valuable things that people hold is this concept of freedom. But it's not freedom for something, it's freedom from something. We don't want to have any sort of constraints. We don't want to have any sort of obligations. We want the freedom to do whatever we want. And yet that's incompatible with relationships. You know, if you want to have a real good relationship, it requires sacrifice. You know, I've got kids, young kids. And having children and loving them is a, it's an exercise in losing your freedom, right? You have to wake up early. My, my son, my youngest son, he's got this really odd thing where he wakes up at 5.45 in the morning. Um, and sometimes in the middle of the night. And sometimes he scares, he tries to scare us. There's this weird thing that happened. We got this mask, this really creepy scarecrow mask, the one that, that you know, scarecrow had and, and one of the more recent Batmans. And um, my five-year-old put this on and woke up my wife at 4 a.m. with the mask on. And so, you know, it required restraint not to, you know, lash out at him and punch him in the face out of fear. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about love, really it's about, it's about giving up your freedom. You know, when we talk about freedom, it's, it's not this general thing that we achieve. It's that we have many different freedoms that we have to be able to set aside in order to obtain something of real value. And if our values drive us to relationships, which is, according to the Bible, the thing that matters most, then uh, we, need to, we need to be able to set aside and discard this, this, this ideal that we see in our culture that freedom is the most important thing. Freedom is important, but it needs to be freedom in order to give and sacrifice for things that matter. Jonathan Haidt says this, an ideology of extreme personal freedom can be dangerous because it encourages people to leave homes, jobs, cities, and marriages in search of personal and professional fulfillment thereby breaking the relationships that were probably the best hope for such fulfillment. This comes from the author of The Happiness Hypothesis, who is admittedly an agnostic person, and yet his findings line up perfectly with ancient biblical wisdom. Finally, there's hope. And Aaron Beck in the 60s came up with what he calls the cognitive triad of depression. He calls it I'm no good, my world is bleak, and my future is hopeless. And I think people who struggle with negative intrusive thoughts and depression feel this way. And yet one of the amazing things is that God offers real hope. You know, you might be here feeling hopeless. You might be here because you're intrigued by the topic and wondered whether or not there was something, some sort of solution that the Bible offers. You know, what God says is that there is real hope, and it's a hope that he provides through us through Jesus Christ. You know, the reason why we sometimes feel as if we have no hope is because we know in the final estimation our lives, if we buy into naturalistic evolution, 
our lives will disappear and vanish after we're gone. And so what real hope can we cling on to? Even cognitive therapy really is just self-talk at that point. If there isn't really something to grasp onto. And yet the Bible says that there is hope for us having an eternity with him and with those whom we love. I wanted to end just by sharing a video testimony of a friend of mine, Liz, who struggled with anxiety and depression. And I wanted to share her story of hope. I guess around maybe my freshman and sophomore year of college, I started having some um, anxiety beyond what I felt was normal. And I started going to counseling at CNOS. The counselor that I met with um, taught me a lot about the importance of um, thinking about other people and kind of taking the focus off of myself and how when we give love, we feel love. Um, I think that um, serving others and thinking about others has been a, a big thing that has helped me through my struggle. She also kind of noticed that it seemed like even as I was trying to implement that and put that into practice, I still was really struggling and um, having a hard time breaking past the, the instability that I felt. And so she recommended that I um, look into medication. And um, so I did that through my family doctor, tried a couple of different things. It actually kind of uh, at first made things worse. Um, so then it was recommended that I go see a psychiatrist, which I wished that I had done sooner. You know, any recommendation that people gave me, I felt like I would try that. And I felt like I still was kind of like spiraling further and it was getting worse. Um, I started having suicidal thoughts. Um, I didn't really take them very seriously because that seemed like such an outrageous thing that I would never really want to engage in. So I just thought like, oh, maybe my medication is causing that or I'm having thoughts about wishing that I was dead, but I would never actually do that. And I think that that's actually one of the places that I went wrong because I didn't view them as a threat. So I continued to um, like allow them to come into my head and I actually did eventually um, attempt suicide. Um, I People, I think, knew that I was struggling, but I think it probably was a surprise, too. Um, so after that, I was hospitalized for a week. Um, it was all very, like, surreal and shocking. Um, even, you know, I am the one that made the choice, but I still felt shocked that it really happened. And I was amazed at the way that people responded when it happened. I thought people would be disappointed and um, want to give up on me and um, view me as like a lost cause. and. 
Instead, I had more visitors every single day than the workers at the hospital had ever seen. And they were all commenting like, wow, you have like an amazing support system. We never see stuff like this. And um, people just communicated forgiveness. And I know that it was really wrong. And I think that they knew that I knew that and they just communicated, we really want you to get better. And that, even though that was kind of rock bottom, that was, the first time in a long time that I actually felt hopeful. Around when I um, attempted suicide, we stepped back from leading our home church and we moved to a different home church with um, leaders that we had known for a long time that um, we had good um, positive relationship with and they were really patient and did everything they could to relieve the perceived pressure that I felt. And it was helpful to like almost start over and go back to basics. I had put myself under pressure for so long that it was helpful to have someone else say, you don't need to do that anymore. With this struggle, people just going above and beyond restructuring our, our small groups, our home churches to be able to accommodate um, supporting us. It was just incredible the kind of support we received. They took it so seriously and, and, and never made us feel bad about needing help. It was yeah. incredible. I, I wished that I had asked for more help sooner because people were so willing to give it. It's amazing that now, um, four years later, that here we are and we've got an awesome marriage and I just love her so much and seeing her be happy and joyful and serving other people in a powerful way and leading a home church together again. Now we're starting a family together, um, gonna have a baby, and it's just all these things that are just amazing and we could have never imagined four years ago. I'm just so thankful to God and to Zenos for everything that they did for us. I am a lot better now, maybe closer to two years at this point. My psychiatrist declared me like in remission of depression. You know, it's, it's hard to talk about, but at the same time, it feels like a, a, a different time in my life. Like it was, it's pretty far away and I feel like a completely different person now. I mean, I, I still struggle, especially in the winter time. Um, I still have sometimes just days, sometimes weeks of kind of those familiar feelings come back up. Um, but it's not in the way that it was. There's a, a hope that has stuck with me, I think. And um, I enjoy actually going to home church and um, being around people again. And I'm able to enjoy, you know, simple things. And yeah, it really feels like that was a different life. Awesome powerful story and um you know what i what i love about her story is that um she admits that even though she's gained tremendous victory that she still struggles and i mean this is going to be an ongoing thing for some people but it's amazing to see what god has done in her life god we uh thank you for awesome stories like that and uh, we know that there are many other stories like this throughout our fellowship people who've really struggled like this and have gained victory. And um, 
we know that the power of your spirit can change people's lives. And I pray for those of us who are struggling with uh, this battle of you know, fighting off negative intrusive thoughts coming into our mind. Pray that we can learn to train our mind and, and to get the help that we need in order to gain victory over this struggle. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.